So, speaking of the future, it is the end of the year, and we start talking about the future together. If you still are one of the six people that read newspapers, the newspapers this weekend will be filled with stuff looking forward to the future. The new movies that are coming out, the new releases from bands, they'll be looking forward to different um, political dynamics this year of knowing what's going to happen with that. They try to talk about that and figure all of that out. Um, A lot of us are looking forward to a new year. There's a lot to be excited about. In our family, our son and daughter-in-law will be graduating college this year, and we're excited about that and a little nervous because I'm not sure what they're going to do next. Um, But we're excited about that. Here at Living Spring, we're excited about a whole lot of new stuff that we're going to be doing this year. There's some construction that's going to be happening. Some new ministries are going to be birthed. And we know as we continue to be faithful to what God's called us to do, there's just going to be things that we don't even, great things we don't even know about yet that are going to be happening in the life of our church. And so we are excited about that kind of future. But we also know that the future can sometimes be daunting and sometimes even a little scary, that there's challenges in the future that we're not quite sure that we're up to. And uh, some of us, some folks this last year even spent some time wondering if we were even going to have a future. You know, the biggest one that we saw this year was the Mayan calendar was filling up. This is the calendar that people were talking about. If you look in the lower right-hand corner, see those little circle faces, guys? Those were the um, things that represented certain amounts of years, and the calendar was filling up. And so, obviously, The entire world is structured around an obscure piece of paper that they found in Central America, and we figured that the world was going to end. But as it turned out, they had misread the calendar. And isn't that just so human being-ish? I mean, think back over the last year, and think back over some of your worst moments of where you were scared, you were frustrated, you were angry, and how much of your scaredness, your angriness, your frustratedness, those aren't even words. But anyway, the, the feelings that you're feeling, think about how much of that was based on having misread the situation. And that's what happened with the Mayan calendar. We were wrong about that. But not all the predictions in the last year were wrong. There was one that I made that resulted in this. Okay, this is uh, two LA Galaxy players celebrating their second consecutive MLS championship here in the United States. And as the playoffs began, the Galaxy were one of the last teams in, but I predicted the entire sequence of the playoffs in advance. I predicted they would beat beat, uh, Vancouver. I predicted they would advance and beat San Jose and beat them on their field, and then advance and beat um, Seattle and beat them on their field, which was very gratifying because as a Galaxy fan, I have a lot of bad feelings towards both San Jose and Seattle, so it was not only good to see our team win, but it was fun to beat those other teams. And I used to feel bad about those feelings. You know, I've reached a point where there's teams I root for and teams I root against, and I sort of sheepishly admitted that to John and Gary Helmers about a month ago, and they both were like, no, no, and then took about five minutes to telling me about all the teams that they hate, too. So (laughs) it, it wasn't just me. And then And then the Galaxy made the final in our stadium and beat the Houston team. And here are two of their players, Omar Gonzalez and A.J. De La Garza, bringing the trophy over to me um, after the the game. Well, it was me and about 500 other people of the group that they were bringing it over to. But in any case, um, not all the predictions are wrong. But joking aside, the future can be tough. And... It's helpful as we look forward to the new year and look forward to the uncertainty of 
the future that we have, we need to remind ourselves that we are in God's hands. And that God is gracious and that God is merciful and he has both the power and the desire to accomplish his purposes in our life. That's something we can hold on to. That's something we can trust. That's something we can know. And this is something that I hope you can hold on to as we move into the new year. The simple fact is that we can trust God with our future. It only makes sense that we can because so many of the most important things of who we are are out of our hands anyway. You know, Jesus actually kind of jokes with us when he talks about this in Matthew 6. He says, look, you know, by worrying, can any of you add even an hour to your life? No. And a lot of us have tried really hard, right? <laughs> We've tried really hard with worrying because it, it, it feels somewhat satisfying. If I could just think about this one more time, it'll work for me. But Jesus says, look, you know, God has this in hand. Trust him on this. You can trust him for the future. We can trust God for the future. But here's the thing, is that while we can trust God for the big picture of where the future is going to go, where the world is going to end up, where your life is going to end up, that's largely out of our hands. But there's a big in-between, between where we are right now hanging out together at Living Spring Christian Fellowship on the 30th of December to the end. There's a lot that he leaves to us, that there's a lot between us and the end that he gives to us. Jesus talked about this as he was departing from earth, um, and he talked about it several places in different ways, but here, here's one of them. This is Jesus' last words that he gave to his disciples before he left, um, and he said this, he says, this is what I want you guys to do until I come back. He says, you guys are going to be my witnesses. You're going to stand up for me with your lives, the way you live your lives, and what you say. You're going to be my witnesses. You will be my representatives. Or as John talked with us about us with a few weeks ago, you're going to be my ambassadors. You will be my official representatives in this world. And you're not going to just do this with people you already know. He, he gives them three categories. You're going to do this in Judea, you're going to do this in Samaria, and you're going to do this in the ends of the earth. Now, what he means by that, I, I think he was speaking kind of represent, rep, in a representative way. Um, almost got stuck there. <laughs> what, what he's saying is, look, you're going to do it in the places that are familiar with you. He was talking to people who knew Judea. So you're going to do it with people and in places that you're familiar with. And then you're going to do it in Samaria. You're going to be my representatives to people that you don't like. And they don't like you. And there's probably reasons why they don't like you. And yet you're going to be my representatives to them. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my ambassadors to those people. And then finally, he says, you're going to do it to the ends of the earth. You're going to do it in places that you've never been, with people that you don't know, and in ways that you can't even imagine right now that that is what God is going to call us to do. And as we look forward to the future, that is part of what God has in store for each of us and what he has in store for Living Spring. Well, here's another way to put it. It's not only can we trust God with the future, but the fact that he calls us to be his witnesses means that God trusts us with the future as well. That what he wants to accomplish in this world right now He's going to depend on us to get it done. 
that as his representatives, we are the flesh and bone and blood and the words in this world. I mean, we still have scripture. God is still at work in people's hearts. But we, as his witnesses, as his ambassadors, as his representatives, it means that God trusts us. He trusts you with the future. Now, that's really kind of an amazing thing. And for me, as I was getting ready for this, this was, this was almost like a new idea. I mean, the idea that we're supposed to trust God with the future, that's, that's not a new one. It's not what I've mastered yet, but it's, it's not a new one for me. But this kind of was a new idea for me. It, it, the really amazing reality is that for how things are going to go in each of our circles, in the circle that our church connects to, and in unexpected ways, end-of-the-earth ways, that God trusts us with that and the future. And that the future in the places that we touch and will touch is dependent upon us. Now, if you're a normal human being and not like, you know, a sociopath or something like that who just assumes that everything's okay, um, most of us hear that and we're kind of inspired and it's also a little daunting to realize that something like that is, is dependent on us. That, that God, you know, who's a fager, fairly major person in the world, is, is dependent on me and you and us together to accomplish his purposes in this world. And most of us are probably thinking that we're quite not up to it. That we're people that, you know, how am I going to be a witness when I'm somebody that people don't really listen to too much? Kind of an outsider. Or moreover, how am I, how am I going to be a witness when I'm somebody that if, if they really knew my story, they shouldn't listen to me? You know, I've messed up quite a bit. And yet, that's who God uses, to put kind of a fine point on it. The people that God uses most often throughout Scripture and in the life that we live now are people who we could call outsiders and failures. Most of us have had the experience of being outsiders. All of us have had the experience of being failures. Some of us have not yet quite figured out that it was our fault. We're still trying to blame other people for it. But all of us have had that experience, okay? This is all who we are. And yet, here's the good news. Being an outsider, being a failure, is what makes you eligible to be his witness. It's what makes you eligible to be his ambassador, to be the people that God speaks in and through, through our lives and through our words, as we bring the good news to the world. That being an outsider and a failure is what it takes to be God's person. I want to give you two examples of what that's like. The first example of outsiders are the women that were around Jesus. Um, there's an interesting theme in the Gospels. It's especially in the Gospel of Luke, if you have the eyes to see it, that it's very often people that were traditionally considered to be outsiders, the people that weren't supposed to get it, seemed to get what Jesus was doing soonest and seemed to follow Jesus with the greater intensity. You'll notice along the way that, you know, like with the story of Mary and Martha in the Gospel of John, Mary gets it right. She's supposed to, you know, as a woman, she's like, you're supposed to be in the kitchen. And it's like, no, I want to listen to Jesus teach. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. You're supposed to be doing that. Um, John told us a story a couple weeks ago of the woman who anointed Jesus' feet with perfume, um, which was a very extravagant thing. And the disciples, you know, Jesus' top guys are like, nah, man, she shouldn't be doing that. What's she doing? And Jesus is like, no, no. She got it right. You got it wrong. It's often, if you look in the Gospels, it's the people that are outsiders 
that seem to get it sooner. And you, some of you might remember from reading through the Gospels, in the stories surrounding Jesus' death and burial and then resurrection, Jesus' disciples, the guys, they disappear. They take off. When Jesus is arrested, they do some dumb things and then they take off. But the women hang in there with him. And as Jesus is dying on the cross, it's the women that followed him the whole way that are still there. And not only that, but it's the women that follow Jesus that the Lord chose to make the first witnesses to the resurrected Christ. They're the ones that go to the tomb on what we're now calling Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday. They're the ones that go to the tomb and find it empty. Now, you might remember the story where an angel appears to him and says, you know, why do you seek the living among the dead? Which I thought was kind of unkind because they're already kind of freaked out. And I thought the angel could have calmed them down a little bit first instead of asking kind of an aggressive rhetorical question. Um, But I don't think angels talk to people very often. And so I I think they're a little unpracticed in that. Because everybody freaks out when they talk to angels. And I think that's part of it, is the angels just aren't very good at it. But in any case, they, they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? And then they said, do you remember that Jesus was said he was going to be resurrected? Now, go and tell his disciples that he was raised. And then they did exactly that. They remembered Jesus' words. And in the Gospel of Luke, this is a big deal. To remember correctly means to believe and understand things. And this is the point, that women who were outsiders, that no one counted on, that people had discounted, were the first people that God chose to be his witnesses. And they got it. When it says they remembered his words, that's Luke's shorthand for saying they got it. They understood it. They put it all together. And so when they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the 11. Remember, Judas has killed himself, so there's only 11 disciples at this point. And to the others, there was a larger group of disciples And then Luke names them, but even Luke doesn't bother to give us all of their names. Look at, you notice this? We get Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, who was also the mother of Jesus, and the others, just another random group of women, who told this to the apostles. So they go and they do what the angels told them to do. They get it, and they are in fact the witnesses that Jesus calls us all to do, the ambassadors, the representatives, they're the first ones. But you know what? doesn't work very well. Look at what happened. They didn't believe the women. These are the apostles. Probably because they were women. We're apostles. What are you talking to us for? But also because their words just seemed like nonsense. The apostles still don't get it. And yet these were the women that God chose. So there are probably points where, because a lot of you are women, you've been discounted. You're thinking, man, people aren't going to listen to me. And that's not an experience that's, it happens too many, too often to women in our society, but it's not an experience that's unique to women, to think, I'm not somebody they're going to listen to. And yet, somebody that people aren't going to listen to, those were precisely the first people that God chose to be his witnesses. So if you don't think you're somebody that people will listen to, you're ready to do it. But besides that, besides outsiders, besides people that weren't listened to, God also picked a major failure to be one of his representatives, and that's Peter. Now, Peter, you might know from the story, is kind of a big deal guy among the disciples. And on, the, on Pentecost Sundays, um, five or seven weeks later, 
where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and all kinds of amazing things happen seven weeks after Jesus' resurrection, um, Peter ends up being the spokesperson. So when they really get rolling as a community, as the church, Peter is the first witness there. He's the first spokesperson. And yet Peter literally failed his way to that position. His nickname, Peter, was a kind of sarcastic, ironic nickname. It's derived from the Greek word for rock or stone. His real his parents called him Simon. They probably, why do they call you Peter? You know, his mom probably still called him Simon through the rest of his life. But his ironic, sarcastic nickname from Jesus was Peter, which is derived from the word for rock or stone because he wasn't that guy. He was really shaky. He was really iffy. He did dumb things. And at the time when he was really on the line and he had his first chance to be a witness to Jesus, to be his representative, to tell that story, he failed. And he failed in a really major way. Um, You might remember the story that just before Jesus is arrested and the sequence of events that's going to lead to his death on the cross and then his resurrection, I think in kindness, Jesus warns his disciples and he tells them what's coming. And he tells them, you guys are going to be scattered. It's going to be really hard for you to hang in here when this happens. And Peter steps up and says, no way, man. I've got this. There's no way I'm not going to follow you. Nothing can prevent that. And Jesus looks at him, and I, can't, I think again in kindness and probably with sadness because he can see where this is going to go. And he says, no, Peter, you're not only going to deny me, you're not only going to fail, but you're going to do it three times. Three times before tomorrow morning, before the rooster crows. And Peter's just like, yeah, whatever, I've got this. But they walk out, Jesus is arrested, the guys are scattered, and Peter kind of follows very way back in the crowd. And Peter is given three opportunities to say, yeah, I'm one of Jesus' followers. And the thing is, is, is Peter didn't even have to initiate this. People literally walked up to him and said, hey, you're one of Jesus' followers. Can you tell me about him? No, no, I don't follow him. And they're like, no, no, you are. You, you've got that accent that those people from Galilee have. He had like a regional accent. I don't know what, what it sounded like, but it didn't sound like the sophisticated people in Jerusalem. Like, you, you have that accent, man. You're, you're one of them. No, no, there's no way. And then the third time, the guy comes up to him and says, no, no, you really are one of his followers. And, and Peter responds, man, and... When they said man in their setting, it wasn't a friendly kind of thing. You know, we'll, we'll say, hey, what's up, man? And that's kind of how we talk here. Um, but in their setting, to begin a sentence with man is not friendly. And Peter is unhappy with this. He's truly trying to brush this guy off. And he says, he says man, I don't even know what you're talking about. And then it happened. Just as Peter was speaking, the rooster crowed. And to make it worse, Jesus is nearby and Jesus turns and looks at him right at that point. And, and it just kills him. It just kills him. Peter remembered then what Jesus had said, that you were going to deny me three times. You're going to fail me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. And yet, that's who Jesus picked. That's who the Lord picked to be his representative, to speak for him on the biggest day, the foundation of the church was Peter. That's who God picks. He picks people who in their heart of hearts say they'll never believe me. 
He picks people who say they shouldn't believe me. These are the people that God trusts with the future. And so the point today is, is if you're one of those people, if you've had that experience of thinking, man, they shouldn't believe me, they won't believe me, then you're ready. You're ready to be that person. You're ready to be one of the people who can speak for God. Because God does want to trust us with the future. So, since we're qualified, since we've all screwed up enough to be qualified for this, what do we do? What's it look like? And there's a great passage I want to share with you in Titus. It's one of those kind of obscure books in the part of your New Testament that probably still the pages are kind of clean. Um, that doesn't get read a whole lot. And it wasn't read a whole lot by me. I, it was kind of cool to discover it this year. One of the things I worked on this year was, was trying to read parts of the Bible that I was less familiar with. Um, you know, even though I was a, you know, a Bible professor for a lot of years, there was stuff I specialized in. So there were other parts that I, I'd read but hadn't really thought about a whole lot. And Titus was one of those books that this year I kind of thought about. And there's this great passage um, in Titus 2 that really kind of lays out how one goes about being this witness, this ambassador, this representative for Jesus, how you go about being the person that God trusts with the future, and how we do it collectively. Um, but it's really dense, and it's really packed, sort of like the sermon is, and it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of stuff in it, um, and so we're going to break it down a little bit. But let me, um, let me show you where it starts. So this is chapter 2 in this, and it, and it gives us basically the starting point. He says this, he says, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That that's the thing that we give witness to. That's the message that we as ambassadors are sent to convey. That's what we represent. That the grace of God, God's not compelled, God doesn't do it out of frustration or anger, but God graciously decides to offer salvation to us. To change who we are, in our hearts, in our lives, and to restore us into relationship with him. To give us a good life is what salvation is. And this is something that God's grace, again, it's not something that God's compelled to do. It's not something he has to do. Oh, I'm God, this is my job description, I have to do this. This is something that God wants to do. He wants to restore us and all of humanity, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, the people you know and like, the people you know and they don't like you, and the people you don't yet know. It's our job to be his witnesses, to be his representatives, to experience this ourselves, and out of the richness of that, with both our words and the lives that we lead, to make this real for the people of the earth, the people that we get to encounter. So that grace has appeared in salvation to all people. Everybody gets it, and God trusts us with making that happen. Now, there's some changes that go on in us that enable us to do this, that give us that story that we tell of how God has been at work in our life, and it gives us the story that we live out so that we live lives of such great beauty that the people around us obviously see that God's at work there, and they want to be part of that story. Here's where it goes. Let me just read this, and then I'm going to break it down because there's a whole lot here. This is one long sentence um, in English. It's one long sentence in, in the Greek that Paul wrote it in, um, and it was kind of okay to write big, complicated sentences in Greek. 
It's not okay to write them in English. If I, we were writing this now, it'd be a little clearer. But it's the Bible, and I'm not going to argue with it. So, but this is an awful lot. So, so let's read through it, and then we'll kind of break it down. He says, look, God's grace teaches us to say no to, the ungod, to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. That's a lot, and that's what we're here to do, is help break that down a little bit. But again, we can trust God with the future. We know it's going to turn out okay. But that gap between where we are right now and where we're ultimately going to end up, this is how we fill that gap. And God trusts us with that, to fill up the future between now and the ultimate end. So let's break this down a little bit and look at parts of it. First, here's where it starts. I'm going to start at the end. We get into this because God, it uses some language that's very common from the Bible. It's that God redeems us and he purifies it. The idea that we're stuck in our sin. We're stuck in the, in the sins that we've committed and other people have committed us. And you've probably experienced this. You know that there are wrong things that we do that are just easy to do. And you feel like you're, you're bound to that. And the word that's redeemed here, it's used for like buying somebody back from slavery. And so if you've ever felt enslaved to something, if you've ever felt bound by something that what God wants to do to us and through us, other people, is to buy us back from that. And then to change us, to purify us. We need to understand that the good news of the gospel is not just God making adjustments, not just helping us try a little bit harder, not just knocking a little bit off the edges. It's completely transforming us. It's making us into new people. And to do this, in that we become his people. His stamp is on us. We become recognizably God's people. When he's redeemed us, when he's purified us, people will look at us, they'll look at us as a people here at Living Spring and say, those people belong to Jesus. So that's something that God's, God's doing. In addition to this, when you've been redeemed, when you've been purified, part of the changes is that you become eager to do good. Now this is really kind of an amazing thing because most of us have experienced over time it's a lot easier to do the wrong thing than it is the right thing, right? Most of us are far more eager to eat ice cream than we are vegetables. Um, you know, we, we, are, we are far eager to, when we see somebody doing something wrong, to put them right rather than to graciously respond to people. And yet, part of that change, and this is one of the marks of being one of God's people, of being his witness, his ambassador, his representative, is that we are people that are actually eager to do good. That that is one of the changes that will happen in your life as you give yourself to Jesus and as you give him permission to be at work in your life. And he wants to do that because he's trusting you with the future. Then he goes on. Another thing that this grace does is it teaches us to say no. Um, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Paul, writing to Titus here, recognizes that doing the right thing doesn't come naturally. We have to learn how to do it. 
Um, there's another place where Paul writes about this in Romans, in Romans 7. He says, look, you know, the stuff that I want to do, it's hard to do. The stuff I don't want to do, easy to do. And so God's grace and that experience of grace, over time, as you give yourself to it, as you live with it, as you trust it, will teach you how to say no to the wrong things. Now, here's a cool connection that I noticed when I was preparing for this. Um, The word translated learn to say no is is the Greek word arneamai. Here's a cool thing. That's the same word used to describe what what Peter did when he failed Jesus. It teaches us to deny wrong things. Just as Peter... So Peter arneamide Jesus when he failed him. And what God's grace is going to teach us to do is to arneamide the bad things in our life. So here's kind of a cool point, is we all know how to fail, right? We've all done it. And again, we're probably honest enough with ourselves to know we can't blame all of our failures on other people. Failing is something we know how to do. And so... What Paul is saying here in Titus is, look, you already know how to fail. So what God's grace is going to do is teach you how to fail at doing the wrong thing. Isn't that kind of cool? We already know how to fail. And we just assume that failure is always going to lead to the wrong thing. But it's one of those cool upside-down things of how God works, that if you allow God to be at work in your life, you're going to learn how to fail at doing wrong rather than fail at doing good. I think that's kind of cool. And then finally, what God's grace is going to enable us to do is live what he calls self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Now, here's what's interesting. A lot of the language he's used before is, is language that shows up throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and other places in the New Testament. But these phrases that he uses here um, to be self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, those aren't Christian terms. Um, he's borrowing terms that the people on Crete, that Greeks would use. And that phrase, in this present age, I think is an important one. What he's saying is, is that God is going to enable you to live a transformed, even beautiful life, but it's going to have characteristics that people that don't know God will recognize as good. Some of you guys, like me, have been around the Christian community for a while. And you know, we, every in-group develops its own behaviors. And you do stuff because you're in the in-group. So there's stuff that you know. There's, and we were joking about before about the way some worship leaders do certain things. And basketball players walk in a certain way. And people that have been around churches for a while have certain churchy kinds of ways that they behave. And those aren't bad. They're almost all innocuous. But what's important is not learning how to do just the right thing with your arms in worship or um, adding certain words to your vocabulary like Christians do. It's living lives that people who know nothing about God would recognize as good. I mean, this is, this is one, of the, one of the reasons why it's really important that we do the ministries that our church does, like we did with Toys for Tots, like we do with the food ministry, like we do with the showers, where we reach out to folks. Because regardless of somebody's religious commitments, they recognize that as good. 
you don't need to have any Christian understanding to know that giving food to somebody who's struggling with food is a good thing. You don't need to have years in church to know that giving somebody a chance to take a shower who's living on the streets is a good thing. And that's an important part of our witness. That's an important part of how we live out the life that God has given us. In this present age, in the world that we're in. So he's using words that people in the Greek world would recognize as positive things. Now here, and you, you know when you translate stuff, a word means a whole range of things. The word that gets translated self-controlled here means that your life has purpose. And it's driven according to that purpose. You're not driven by the things around you, but you're driven by the experience that you've had with God. You're not a character in a story. You're the author of the story. You're not chasing. You're leading. And it's living that kind of life. Because when God redeems us and purifies us, we're no longer driven by the dark sides of who we are. And we can begin to consciously do the right thing. That's what he means by self-controlled. Godly lives, it's another word, that it's something the Greeks um, worried about a lot. And again, it's the idea that your life is characterized by God. Now, we see this in a lot of other places. This is an NFL Sunday. There are lots of people whose lives are characterized by the NFL. They wear their jerseys. They, do, they play fantasy leagues. They, they do Facebook updates about their team, you know, that kind of stuff. A lot of us, we know what it's like to live... NFL lives or other things. Sometimes it's the car we drive or that we drive motorcycles or that we're in a band or we don't do those things. Sometimes you're just a hater and your identity is the stuff that you don't do. Okay? But you can recognize that that's somebody whose life is characterized by that thing. What he's saying here is that when we receive God's grace, when we make that decision, we live lives that are characterized that people will look at us and say, that, that's somebody that belongs to God. That's somebody that knows God. And those are the kind of people that he trusts the future to. The final one that's translated upright there is is the word that's righteous. And that's one of the ones he borrows from the Old Testament. But again, we often think of righteous as like an older white guy in a suit who doesn't do things. And righteousness here is kind of an aggressive good. It's not abstaining with stuff, but it's someone who is consciously powerfully doing good. And that's what he's calling all of us to do. And the people he calls to do that, again, are people that were failures, people that they don't listen to, and yet what God wants to build into our lives are each of those things, that we can be self-controlled, upright, and godly in this world. And why does God do all of that? He does it because he likes you, and he loves you, and he wants you to live an abundant life, but he also does it because God trusts us with the future. That he wants us as his people, together and individually, to live lives that are so beautiful, that are so attracted, that we will be witnesses to the story with both our words and our lives of what God is doing. So that's an awful lot. And there's a lot of details to this. But I hope you can walk away from today just knowing that you can trust God with the future, don't worry, he's got it. But because he's got it, all that in-between stuff, together with him, he wants to turn over to us. That God wants to trust us with the future. Or more to the point, 
that God trusts you with the future. So as we finish today and as we go forward, count on that. Lean into that. Work with the Lord to try to figure it out. And as the worship guys come back forward, let me finish up with this a bit. But hold on to that. Know that God wants to be merciful. He wants to use people that have been broken. He wants to use people that have failed, that he wants to show mercy to, that he wants to transform, that he wants to make us into people whose lives are transparently godly, that are transparently marked by God's life to do something beautiful with because he wants to trust us with the future.